What we do here matters. This is significant. This is significant. Uh, Our world can be falling apart, but what we do in, in these four walls, when we come together, God is aware of and he is he is approving of these are sobering times and what we do here uh, has significant consequences we must prepare ourselves we must continue to heed God's word so i would i would invite you to turn in your bible to 1st Timothy chapter 3 1st Timothy chapter 3 the most appropriate thing that Christians can do is to go to the word of God in these times 1st Timothy chapter 3 we have just been moving slowly through this book thinking through what God has said and how we can apply this to our life and 1st Timothy chapter 3 I'll just read a couple of verses in our hearing today verse 1 says it is a trustworthy statement if any man aspires to the office of overseer it is a fine work he desires to do An overseer, then, must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. Stop right there. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You, Lord, for the guidance that it gives our life, the direction, the purpose that uh, it, uh, it gives us, it, it, it just fills out our life, it gives us an abundant life, Lord, that we can live out truth that pleases you. We, we live out a life on a daily basis that glorifies the God who created us. Lord, help us to never think that our life is insignificant. Help us to see how important... What we do is, as Christians, Lord, every verse, every word from this book is yours. And so, Lord, let us, uh, let us take care to understand it appropriate, uh, uh, properly and uh, appropriately apply it to our lives. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Paul is now talking about leadership in the church. Um, Leadership is significant. It's significant because God works through leadership. He uses leadership in our life, in the life of the church, for sanctification. He brings uh, the elders, the leaders into the church. Now, Paul, in this passage, if you notice, Paul says, overseer. That's the uh, the highest office in the church. Now, before, um, you know, now... uh, up to uh, the t- during the time of in the life of Paul, um, there was a, another office in the church, and that was an apostle. The apostles were those who were directly taught by Jesus, and Paul he was one of those apostles as well. He he considered himself as untimely born. He wasn't one of the original twelve, but uh, but as it were, he he kind of took Judas's place, and there was a, that office of an apostle. But those apostles were, were limited to the, to the twelve and they die out. And what they have done is they have passed on or they have, 
willed the next generation of, of believers an office of an elder. And Paul is now teaching about leadership in the church falls to this term, this person of elder or overseer is the term that he used. Overseer simply means a watchman. And that would be someone that uh, would stand upon the, the city gates and, and he would watch. He would watch outside the, the, the city walls and, and make sure, see who's approaching. Make sure their enemy is not, uh, is not approaching. Make sure the gates are locked. Uh, if it was overnight, he would, he would be uh, awake all night and he would watch. He would be an overseer. An overseer. Someone that would just observe. And give oversight to. And that's exactly, that's an appropriate term. This, this office, this overseer, he oversees the teaching of the church. He protects and guards the truth that the church has been entrusted with. He protects the purpose and the mission of the church. He's, he's that overseer. Another term, though, that is used is the term elder. It's the same office, it's just a, a little bit different. It's a, more of a term of respect. In the, in the uh, Jewish world, an elder would be, would be more of a term of respect. You might see the term uh, bishop uh, in, in certain uh, Bibles, uh, but that actually came along on, in the 2nd and 3rd century, and it has the more uh, of a hierarchical uh, idea, and it really was not appropriate for... Uh, scripture, scripture really does not use that. I think it's it's filtered in uh, from some of the translations, but it's not really so. It's not really there. There is no hierarchy. There's nothing higher than the office of an elder. What we see in scripture. Another term that's used that substitute here would be pastor, because the leadership in the church is different from leadership in the world. It's a it's a humble leadership. It's a servant leadership. It's a loving leadership. It's a different kind of, of leadership than what you would find. Also, it's a plurality of leaders. Eldership, uh, this overseer, he's not alone. It's not that his will be done. No, there's a plurality of elders. Now, we see this in Acts chapter 20. When Paul was on his way to uh, Jerusalem, he calls the uh, he, he wants to meet with the elders of the church in Acts chapter 20, verse 17. I'll just read it quickly. You don't have to turn there. From Atlantis, he called to Ephesus and called to him the elders, plural, of the church, the church singular. So one church in Ephesus, that church, the church in Ephesus, he called the elders and he says, elders, come, I want to talk to you. And that's exactly what he does. Does All the elders of the church came and talked to him, all of these overseers, and, and he warns them, he en encourages them in the Lord. So there was a multitude or, or, or a number of elders, a number of shepherds, a number of overseers in the church. It wasn't just one, it wasn't a dictatorship, it wasn't a, 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 this one person's will be done. No, the elders come along and they unite, they agree over the truth. Why is that significant? Because Christ is the leader of the church. They, they come together over the truth of what Christ has said, and they seek the mind of Christ, and Christ is actually the one who is the head of the church. He is leading the church. That's the picture that we see. And the goal that we see in the church is the goal of these elders 
is spiritual maturity. We see that. We saw that in, eight, in Ephesians chapter 4. In verse 11, is the, the purpose of, of training and maturing the saints for the work and the service of the ministry, of, of going out and proclaiming the gospel. Each one of us has a responsibility. Each one of us has a ministry outside these four walls. Now, what he is addressing in this passage in the broader context, is who? Who can lead? And he's just talked about the responsibilities of women. And he's saying earlier, verses 9 to 15, he said it's not the responsibility of the women to lead the church. That responsibility falls to the men of the church. It's a heavy, weighty responsibility, and it falls to the men of the church, not to the women of the church. They have a, a different function of the church. And it's just as significant and just as important to the church. But the question is, how do we know when a man measures up? How do we know, we look at the congregation, how can we tell? Yeah, he, is, he has grown spiritually to the point of qualifications or qualify, to be qualified as an, an elder. Now in the, in the world, leadership is about mastering people. It's about the, the big picture, the grandiose, his ability to, uh, to persuade people, his orator skills, his manipulations of the, of the masses, the crowds, and to dominate people, maybe with the dominant personality in Israel. And they were looking for a king and they looked for the tallest, the most handsome, maybe the most persuasive. Those are things maybe the world would look at, but... It's not to be so in the church. The spiritual leader of the church, according to Scripture and what we see in Scripture, doesn't master people. He masters the truth. And he masters himself. And that's the focus that Paul gives here in these qualifications. It's surprising because you would think, man, we we need somebody with uh, political skills, politically savvy that can just woo the crowd and and persuade the people. But that's not at all what Paul deals with here. He doesn't, doesn't have those kinds of qualifications. What he does deal with is someone that's introspective to the point, not an unhealthy point, introspective to the point that he's refining himself, that spiritually God is working in his heart, God is working in his life to produce a certain kind of person. And that's what we see. Those are the qualifications. So he's not mastering people, but he's mastering self. Mastering self. And so the picture that we see in Scripture is this, this elder, these overseers, they, they proclaim the truth and, and those who hear the truth and, and the truth resonates within their own life, they respond to that truth. They submit themselves to that truth and they live, they're willing then to live in light of that truth. It's all, all about the truth. And the elders are there to just simply proclaim that truth. It is God's Word that takes uh, root in our life and begins to grow and change a heart and life. But notice, if you look at verse 2, an overseer then must be. Now, I just want you to notice those two words. Must be. Now, that's important in these qualifications. He's given us this list of qualifications. He's must be. This is an absolute necessity. 
This is a mandate. These are God's standards, and God sees the heart. God sees that person. Must be. This is, this is a command from God. These standards cannot change. God is, a, is not a God that changes His mind. He must be. And it's in the state of being. It's in the present tense, uh, meaning that he is that now, and he continues to be that way. It, just talking about the person's character. This man's character. This is the way he is. This is just the structure of his life, you might call it. He uses the term above reproach. Now, that's pretty heavy. That, that's pretty heavy. He uses that same term in Titus, and he even says blameless at, at one point. Blameless. Above reproach. Now, I want you to see that as, as kind of the umbrella term. The, the overseer, the elder, must be above reproach. He must be blameless. Now, that's not perfection. It's kind of the broader umbrella of the rest of these, uh, these characteristics here. It's more like a, a summary statement of all of these qualifications. Above reproach literally means not able to hold on to. No one can throw an accusation and hold on to them, or an accusation would stick. That's the, that's the idea here. It's not that there's no accusation. There might be accusations, but it just does not stick. There's no, no grounds for that accusation. It doesn't, there's nothing there. There's no skeletons in the closet. There's just nothing there. The other day, I was playing around. I was joking with some of the ladies uh, in the heritage room as we were somewhat preparing for vacation Bible school and I was trying to convince the ladies how mean my wife is to me. She's just plain mean. And I just said, oh, no, you don't know her. And you get behind closed doors and she's just mean to me, you know. And that didn't stick. I threw out the accusation and they said, ah, oh, we don't believe you. Why? Because they know my wife. They, they know her. It's just not characteristic of her. And that's the idea. You could throw out an accusation against this man, against this person, but it just there's just nothing there. It just does not stick. It's free from accusations. So that causes us to evaluate our own life. We have to think. Do I measure up? Do I, uh, do I have accusations in my life? What would other people say? Would they stick? And more important than that is what does God, how does God evaluate my life? How does God see me? Because he, uh, we, we might be able to cover up what man sees, but God sees the heart. He sees everything. So we have to evaluate ourselves. And this is, this is a perfectly good list to evaluate ourselves. In fact, that's what Paul is somewhat doing here. This is not just a, a list for uh, just the, the elders or the overseers of the church. They are to be the examples for the church. This is just a, a level of spiritual maturity that everyone else is, is reaching for. And these men, these men have, have strived to attain, attain it. So it's, a, it's an, an example, you might say. Now, why is this so important? Why is this? Why was Paul give so much attention to these things? It's, it's actually the whole chapter. He's talking about the qualifications of elder, qualifications of the deacons. Because what we do here is important. 
It's important. It is not insignificant. This little church in Daniels, West Virginia, or, or, uh, or Beckley, greater Beckley area, what we do here is important to God. Who we choose is important to God. It is important. Let me give you a few, few reasons that it's important. It's, beca- it's important because that leader becomes a target of Satan, a bigger target of Satan. And Satan would love to attack and love to hit the leaders. Bigger target. Bigger target. So he has to have that level of maturity. Another reason is because when Satan does attack and when there's, uh, when there's sin involved, there's, there's greater harm done to the sheep. There's greater harm done to the flock. The flock can scatter. The flock can be disillusioned and, and confused. So it's important. There's greater knowledge, by the way. Greater accountability before God. Well, there's many reasons. There's more potential for hypocrisy, isn't there? The hardest thing about proclaiming the, the truth of God's Word is living up to that truth. I know that very well. Because I, I commit sins. I do things and I say, I just preached against that just the other day. And here I am. Become a greater target of Satan. Become more hypocritical. It's a hard thing for any elder to teach the Word of God. And to live up to that. But God gives grace. God gives grace when when we try, when we strive. He gives grace. When we are faithful to confess our sin, He He is faithful. When we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us all of our sins. He, he's abundantly given, giving grace so when we try, when we give the effort, He gives grace. There's more abundant grace because of a righteous life that's at least being tried to live out before the Lord in this example. Here's what I want us to see. This is the, this is the point. For a godly man to be able to hold to the office of an elder or an overseer, there must be specific, visible evidence of spiritual growth in certain areas of his life. Paul deals with certain areas of, of the, the elder's life here, and there must be that spiritual growth, that's, that, that level there. And then the question we'll look at is, when is a man qualified? When is he ready to be an elder? Now, men, I, I want to challenge you to think about this. We need godly elders in this church. The next generation needs godly men. Men who will step up and be the elders. And Paul gives us 16, 16 qualifications, 16 characteristics here of an, an elder. But one commentary of actually Pastor John MacArthur, he, he broke these down into four different categories. First of all, it's the category of moral character. And then, secondly, he talks about his home life. And then he talks about his spiritual maturity. And then his public ministry or public reputation. So there's four different categories. And we'll look at these over the period of a couple of weeks. And uh, we'll first look at the, the moral characteristics of this man, of this elder, of this overseer. Don't worry, I'm not going to try to do them all today. In fact, I recognize that uh, the hour, and I will probably only get through one. Now, don't be discouraged with that. We will get through all of them, I know, and we'll try to move it along. But look at the first one. Husband of one wife. Now, that's easy. 
That's easy. Well, what does that mean? Husband of one wife. Some would say, well, he's just forbidding polygamy. You can't have several wives and be an elder. Well, it really would not be appropriate in the Roman world to do that. That would have been frowned upon. Within the church, they would have not been allowed anyway. And that, uh, that really would, is not really what he's saying here. Some would say, well, he's talking about remarriage. If the, if the man's wife has died and uh, he cannot remarry or he will not be qualified to be an elder. I don't believe that that's what he's saying either because we see in Scripture, we see godly men whose wives died and they are still godly men. He's not really talking necessarily about marital status. In fact, some would say that he's talking about uh, excluding single men completely. But that's not really the point. The point of, that he's making here is not his marital status necessarily. He's talking about his moral purity. And some would say, well, it's excluding divorced men. But again, I, I believe he's going even beyond that and talking about marital status. His, his moral purity, his moral character. And that's where, that's where to start. You want to deal with the man and his moral character, you, you start right there. What does he do with his relationship with his wife? That really tells the tale, doesn't it? That's a better character, that's a better um, uh, example than, you know, than many of the characteristics that we would have a leadership today that just treat their wife as though they do not exist or just having affairs or anything. How do they treat their wife? Paul starts right there. That really tells the man. Tells a lot about the man. Now again, what does that mean? It it literally means husband of one wife. Or uh, actually, a better way to put it, it literally means a man of one woman. A man of one woman. It means, it's not just uh, that he is of one woman. He only had one mother. It's not that. No, he, his whole focus, his whole life revolves around one, one woman. That's the idea. And I like the way the NIV translates it here. He says, uh, it says a, a faithful, or he's faithful to his wife. He's faithful in marriage. Faithful in marriage. Again, not talking about marital status necessarily, but moral and sexual behavior. Because marriage doesn't guarantee purity, does it? There's a lot of men who are married and and stay married to a a woman, but are not faithful to that woman. And I commend them for being married. I commend them for staying married. But uh, many times uh, they are not faithful. They're not a one-woman man. They're not uh, focused upon one woman. There's many women for that man. But this one woman man, this man of one woman, his focus is her. He is devoted to her. His heart and his mind is on, on her, on this one woman, on his wife. He loves her. He does, his desire is for her. He thinks about her. He maintains sexual purity in his mind and in his conduct for her. For her. 
Now, this is consistent with the rest of Scripture. Let me remind you that infidelity or unfaithfulness in marriage is forbidden throughout Scripture. And I think that's why he's, he's mentioning this here, because it's so important. In fact, God thinks it's important. One of the Ten Commandments, the Seventh Commandment, Thou shalt not commit adultery. That's what we're talking about here. Someone that is unfaithful to his wife. Thou shalt not commit adultery. I like what, it goes beyond that. I like what uh, Proverbs uh, says, Solomon in uh, Proverbs chapter 6. He says this, Now this is a, a sin against God, obviously. Committing adultery is breaking one of God's commandments. But it's, it's just a, a stupid thing to do. In Proverbs chapter 6 and verse 32, Solomon says it just goes against wisdom. It goes against wisdom. He says the one who commits adultery with a woman is lacking sense. How do you like that? It's lacking sense. It's not just a moral thing. It's just a, it's a foolish thing to do. Lacking sense, the one who commits He who would destroy himself, it says. Wounds and disgrace he will find. And his reproach will not be blotted out. That stigma of having that affair will be with that man the rest of his life. It's a foolish thing to do. Solomon says, Christ said this. Now he ups the ante. Christ, he takes it to the next level. And you remember the verse. In Matthew chapter 5, and verse 27, he says this, And you've heard it said, that thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you, whoever looks at a woman with lust in his heart, or to lust after her, desire after her, lust for her, has committed adultery in his heart. Men, that is, that is staggering in light of the standards, in light of the qualifications of an eldership of being an elder or being an overseer. Looking at a woman with lust in her heart disqualifies me, disqualifies men from being an elder. That unfaithfulness is serious. God takes it seriously. How are you handling the wife of your youth? How are you handling that woman that you are supposed to be devoted to? Are you faithful to her? say, well, why is this important? It's important because, men, sex dominates our life. It does. We can pretend that it doesn't. We can pretend that we, you know, that, uh, that we can handle these things. But in reality, in reality, folks, in reality, men, if you're honest with yourself, you're honest with me, it affects us. Going to the beach, it affects us. Going to Walmart any day, uh, anymore now. I mean, it, it's everywhere. It affects us. That is our weak spot. That is our vulnerability. Women or wives, you must help your husbands in this area. Leadership is prone to fall in this category. And here's what Paul said. How do you solve this problem? 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Paul saw it. I mean, he, he knew how important these things were. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he said this, in the last, uh, the last verse in that chapter, he says, But I discipline my body and make it my slave. I'm going to discipline myself. I'm going to put those parameters on my eyes that I do not look. At least not a second time. 
And I make it my slave, he says, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. That's what he's talking about here. You're disqualifying yourself from that office of an elder. Men have to have control over this area. You say, how do you do it? It's so hard. Guys, I know. I know. It is hard. It is something that we will struggle with. All of us struggle with. James chapter 1. James recognizes how important it is. And he kind of analyzes uh, this sin process. And he just lays it out for us. In James chapter 1 and verse 14 he says this. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lusts. By his own lust. That lust lies within us, men. And, and it's not so, let me shock you here, it's not so much about the way the women dress. It's not so much about what they wear. Now that's important, women. We can't minimize that. The Bible calls for modesty there. But the responsibility lies within the man. We control that lust. He says this. He says, once it's carried away and enticed by that lust, there's something within man. That lure is out there. And it attracts us. That lure is there. And he says, then, when lust is conceived, it yields forth or it brings birth or it gives birth to sin. Sin. That's the process. It starts right there. Starts right there. Where does that lust come from? What's important to you? What's important to you? Paul is saying, if we go back to what Paul is saying, are you a one woman man? Is your attention, is your life revolved around this one woman? Is your focus on her? On her. That desire is easily turned into unfaithfulness unfaithfulness guys i'm talking about pornography guys i'm talking about flirting with the 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 women that you work with that your wife may never meet i'm talking about those emotional attachments that are so dangerous we have to control ourselves say well how do you do that become a one woman man Proverbs, let's go back to Proverbs. Solomon has to deal with this. It's a major part of the, the makeup of a man. And so Solomon has to, dealing in his dealing with uh, uh, training up young men, he, uh, he has to deal with this issue. And, and here's what he says in Proverbs chapter 5. It's so blatant, so clear. Proverbs chapter 5 and verse 18. He says this, Let your fountain bless you comes from you men this is your life it's it's what you do let it bless you or let it be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth rejoice in her god has made her for you as a loving hind and a graceful doe, let her breast satisfy you at all times be exhilarated with her love for why would you, why should you, my son, be exhilarated with an adulteress and, be in, and embrace the bosom of a foreigner? For the ways of the, a man are before the eyes of the Lord. God sees. 
God sees all of these things. And He watches all of His paths. God knows, men, the heart. He knows what's going on. He knows if you're a one-woman man. You say, I've never committed adultery. No, maybe not in the physical sense. You say, well, I'm married. Well, yeah, that's good. But are you faithful? Are you completely devoted to this one woman? Are you ravished with her love? Does she satisfy you? Or do you look other places? You look other places. We have to think about these things, men. But, but let me broaden it out just a little bit. These are hard things. Men, we have to discipline ourselves. We have to, we have to control our lust. It's what we think on it. It's what you put in your mind. And we control those things. So we're not, we're not uh, tempted. We're not lured away. We have to do those things. But let me bring this, uh, bring this around. This is a characteristic of uh, an elder of a godly man, a man that's at least striving for these things, a man that's at least raised or at least come to a certain level of discipline in his own life that he's focused upon this one wife that the Lord has blessed him with. So we do those things, but let me broaden it out a little bit and say this. These are standards to not get us into heaven. <laughs> Christ has already paid those standards. Let me remind you, men. Christ came to earth as a man. He faced every one of these temptations, and He did it perfectly. We can't say that. Men, I can't say that. You can't say that. We do not get to heaven based upon our righteousness, my standard, my level of conduct. Or your level of conduct. We get to heaven based upon Christ's perfect, righteous life. Based upon His standard. What He accomplished. And folks, guys, that gives me a lot of comfort in my own life. Because I know me. If it's based upon my own life, I'm going to fail miserably. So why strive? If I'm already going to heaven, then why do I care? I'm motivated Men, out of love, out of love for Christ, love for His church, love for His high standards, love for His word, love for His people. I don't try to get to heaven. These are not, these are not, uh, here's uh, 16 ways to get to heaven. No, no, a different motivation. Just out of love. Out of respect for the God that is watching me. I'm going to do these things. I'm going to discipline myself. No matter who else does it. No matter who else cares. No matter where I'm at. I'm going to be a, a one woman man. That's the idea. That's the, that is the attitude, if you will. An attitude of an elder. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, these are, these are weighty things for us. In fact, this whole service has been weighty, Lord. We begin to realize when we see the world collapsing around us that even though the world may not hold to your standards, we will. And so these things are important to us. 
And Lord, when there's so many men that just are involved in pornography, so many men who who flirt and live as though uh, they are unmarried, Lord, I pray that the men of Daniel's Bible Church will live up to the standard of godliness that you set, that you are aware of, in spite of what the world does in spite of the low standards, in spite of the decline, of the, the moral decline of our, our society, Lord, help us to, to even ratchet it up and be even more godly and let our light shine even more in this world. Lord, again, I come back to your word and I just thank you for clarity. Thank you for, for what you've given us in this word to, to guide our lives and to help us to, to live an abundant life, an abundant life that glorifies and honors you and a life that is significant. Only because you are significant. Only because we are living up to your truth. And Lord, I pray for these men. Give us ability. Give us wisdom. Give us the desire, the love for you that compels us to live this high standard in a world when there is no standards. Lord, help these men to be godly. Help them to to live up to your standards. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.